please remain standing. Let's pray together before you're seated, please. Father, thank you that in all of your greatness, you welcome us into your presence. Thank you for our great liaison, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who equips us and fits us with his righteousness so that we are welcomed into your presence. Father, thank you for the privilege of being part of your church, and will you now take your word and encourage your church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's possible that you've been uh, looking at your bulletin and your notes and the two don't fit together and you realize something is up this morning, uh, that uh, we are uh, on track for Hebrews chapter 6 as listed in our bulletin, but the sermon notes don't fit. Uh, You need to know that uh, right about the time Saturday night was turning into Sunday morning, I decided that it would just be better for all of us if we waited until next Sunday uh, to do Hebrews chapter 6. It is just a difficult passage. Um, I don't think that I wasted my time this week, but it is a demanding passage, and I do work week to week on my messages, and so um, I just um, needed to wait. I'm going to just trust your love for your pastor. I do ask for your forgiveness. I um, am a little bit embarrassed about that. I did this once before. We were uh, on the Olivet Discourse, I believe, in Matthew 24 and 25. There's a picture on the screen. Um, That's actually your pastor right there um, in what is now my basement of our home in 1999 and uh, 2000. Spring of 2000, I was drilling rock. Um, I told this story once before, and I actually brought uh, a souvenir from that project. Um, This was before 9-11-2001, and so I had rented a compressor and a rock drill, and with a four-foot rock drill, I was drilling the rock for our basement and helping the blast man, and we blew 179 shots to open up our basement. And I want to tell you, that bluestone down there is really hard. And a four-foot rock drill, I bent it and I broke it and I kept it for a souvenir. That bluestone, that's Hebrews chapter 6. And I've been drilling, I've been drilling and blasting, and I've broke a couple bits. And I I just, I, I was almost ready, and I just couldn't quite get to the place where I felt like with confidence I could articulate Uh, my conclusions on Hebrews chapter 6. It really is a difficult passage. In fact, in our notes next week as we enter that passage, um, and uh, you should expect that for next week, or there should be consequence after that. Um, I actually started in our introduction next week listing three reasons why God put hard passages in the Bible. And one of them is to humble us. And I am humbled this morning as I stand before you Um, We'll trust, though, that God will use his word in our lives today. So please forgive me for that, and I mean that in earnest. And I'll beg upon the grace of the elders and the overseers here that they will bear with me um, as I study the word and do my best to bring a good word on Sunday morning that is coherent and helpful. Speaking of Hebrews chapter 6, though, our young people, as you recall, our Bible quizzers memorized Hebrews last year. And uh, today is the day we would have crossed into Hebrews chapter 6. 
and I wanted to, in, to go ahead with our young people as scheduled, quoting the entire chapter. So each time we cross into a new chapter, one of our Bible quizzers from last year, holding on to their memory and keeping it warm for these occasions, will come to the pulpit and, and quote for us. So I want to invite Chris Martineau to the platform, one of our young men who's been part of the Bible quiz team. They, are, they memorized Hebrews last year. This year, the Bible quiz team is memorizing the Gospel of John. And uh, so, Chris, welcome to the platform, young man. Uh, Thank you for being willing to do this for us. And turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 6. Chris, what grade are you in this year? I'm a senior. You're a senior this year. And uh, how many years have you been on our Bible quiz team? This will be my fifth year. Your fifth year. Wow. And uh, can you remember all the books that you memorized? Uh, Yes, I did. uh, My first year, I did Philippians and the first three chapters of Galatians. Second year, I did Colossians and the first five chapters of 1 Timothy the um, third year, I did 1 Corinthians uh, 1 through 6, and then I think uh, 9 through 13 or 9 through 12, mm-hmm. something. Most of 1 Corinthians. Then. Yes, sir, most of 1 Corinthians. Then last year, I did most of Hebrews. Most of Hebrews, all but the last chapter, yes, right? Yes, sir. And then this year, the Gospel of John is correct. Is yes, that right? Sir. Most of the Gospel of John. Yes, sir. Yeah. Tremendous, isn't it? Well, let's hear the word of God as Chris quotes it. He is using the New King James translation, the young people who are part of the Bible quiz team, which is an organized group out of our youth ministry. They are memorizing in the New King James translation. Please follow along in your copy of God's word and let's lay a foundation in our thinking to hear Hebrews chapter six this week, but it'll be next week that we'll trust that the Lord will use it in our lives. Okay. Therefore, Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay, to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Very good, brother. Really appreciate that. So thankful for these young people who are committed. I'm thankful for all of our young people, but grateful for those who have taken this 
uh, step of committing God's word and hiding it into their hearts like that by memory. Well, I was thinking about the church in which I grew up, and um, it was a, a Bible church in South Chicago. My father was the pastor. It was a relatively small church. If we had 80 on a Sunday morning, that would have been a great Sunday. Uh, but when I think about my church, the Posen Community Bible Church of South Chicago, I cannot think about my church without thinking about Ed Ostrowski. Ed Ostrowski was always there. He sat in the same spot. If you entered the auditorium, it'd be in the back, on the back corner. And there he was, and he was an amener. He always amened, and he was so faithful to our church. He was a loyal supporter of my father. And I can't think about my church without thinking about Ed Ostrowski. We moved away to Michigan when I was in the eighth grade. So all of my years growing up through eighth grade, I knew Ed Ostrowski. Someday, when someone thinks about your church, will they remember you? This morning, obviously, we uh, had just a short time to, to think about what God would have for us this morning for our morning message. I wanted to challenge us with this concept as we've been thinking, uh, even with our promotionals throughout August and into September, of getting involved in church, engaging in the ministry here. And the question this morning is, are you making a difference in your local church? You know, there's no such thing in the New Testament of an, of an unbaptized believer. I say that regularly at our baptisms. I guess you could build a case for the thief on the cross. He was not baptized. There's no testimonial or evidence in the New Testament of an unbaptized believer. There's also no evidence in our New Testament of an unattached believer, The testimony of our New Testament is, is that when people follow Christ, they come together in community and they identify with the local church. I recognize that we are part of a greater church worldwide. Just yesterday at a funeral, I was asked to lead in scripture and asked to to lead the audience in, in, in reading the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, as some of you know, know who came up in to some denominational churches where it is repeated regularly, will reference that we are part of the Catholic Church. Now, that doesn't mean that we're Roman Catholic it, and underneath the authority of the Pope, but the word Catholic means universal. There is a greater body of Christ around the world. And God has his people everywhere. But specifically this morning, we're talking about the people who gather on the edge of a cornfield in Shenandoah Junction, West Virginia, who identify themselves as Fellowship Bible Church. This is our church. This is us. We are the church. The question this morning is, are you making a difference in your church I did preach this message in 2007, and I thought that this was an an appropriate time for some encouragement that we be engaged in our ministries here. I needed the encouragement. I don't want to beat anybody up today. If anybody deserves being beat up, it would probably be me today. Um, But I want to encourage you. I want to think about what does your church mean to you? I use that little Uh, acronym, are you mad at your church? Are you making a difference? You see, I want to make this proposition in my introduction. It seems to me 
that my observation through the years has been that a casual relationship with the local church is almost always an indicator of a casual relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. A casual relationship with my local church is almost always an indicator of a casual relationship with Jesus Christ. So this morning, it's a time for us to examine and evaluate, am I connected? Am I making a difference? And is that indicative of my attitude of my walk with Christ? How important is the local body of Christ to me? How important is my church? Am I making a difference? The question is, how committed am I? I suspect that if you were asked that question specifically, particularly by your pastor, you would say, I'm very committed to our church. The question then that follows is, if you're committed to your church, does your involvement in your church reflect your commitment? Or does your involvement not necessarily reflect what you would say that you're connected So the question is, am I mad at my church? Am I making a difference in my church? To do so, I would invite you to, 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 for our study today and our challenge today, I would invite you to turn to the book of Acts. When we turn to the book of Acts, we are turning to really a history book on the early church. It is the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, not A-X-E, Um, It it is short for actions, the actions of the apostles, the deeds, the activities, the acts of the apostles. We're coming off of the gospels here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, our Lord has trained his disciples. They are now committed to the doctrine of the resurrection. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and the disciples and, and the apostles and disciples of Christ and the followers of Christ are now going out worldwide, and they are preaching and teaching on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the church is being established. The book of Acts is really an account of those ministries. You might think of the book of Acts as being um, largely divided into two sections. The first section is, is a lot about the mighty apostle Peter. Now, there's more there than that, but really it's about the ministry of Peter. And then when you get to chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and really the story then becomes taken over a lot by Paul. Paul is converted from Saul, a persecutor of the church, he now becomes the mighty Apostle Paul, handpicked by God to write much of the New Testament, handpicked by God to go to North Africa. He's already been there, right where those people are, and he's planted their churches, and they've died out. Now it's time to plant churches again. But the mighty Apostle Paul was a church planter, a preacher, a teacher. And so the last part of the book of Acts is about Paul. Now, within there, there are characters and interesting stories, but one of the things you need to understand as we enter the book of Acts is that it is really not a book that is, that is intended for teaching material. In other words, it is descriptive of what was happening in the early church. It is a historical account, and so it describes what was going on there in the early church. Now, we learn from it. Now, specifically, the epistles, the writings of Paul to the church at Corinth, to Galatian, to pastors like Timothy and Titus, those are specific teachings do this, don't do that, make sure you teach this, do this. When we read the book of Acts, it's not so much like that. 
We're just, we're just dropping in on an account of what actually ha- happened as recorded for us. And so it's interesting. It's people, it's places, it's events. But here's how we learn from it. We recognize that if this is how it was done under Peter and Paul and the apostles and the disciples who were right there, first century, many eyewitnesses of our Lord's ministry, and this is how they established the church, and these are the things that went on in the church, then maybe it would not be a bad idea if our church reflected some of that. And so this morning, that's what we want to do, only we want to focus on one individual who made a difference in the early church. His name was Barnabas, and we're going to uh, skip through Acts in four different passages, Acts 4, Acts 9, Acts 11, and Acts 13. If you have your notes nearby, you'll probably find it helpful. And what we want to do is we simply want to observe this individual Barnabas, this man Barnabas, how he was engaged in the local churches that he encountered and how he made a difference and how we might reflect some of the characteristics of this Barnabas, this one who encouraged his local church. So we're doing a case study on a difference maker in the local church, Barnabas. Let's begin in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read here verses 32 to 37. You'll see what I mean about how it is descriptive of what was happening. This is probably somewhat of a familiar passage to you as it... as. Uh, Peter has been preaching, people are being saved, the church is being established in Jerusalem, and now we're going to get a description of what's happening in the church. Acts chapter 4, begin with verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. These were just phenomenal days to be a part of this early church. They're learning about Christ. The Holy Spirit is opening their mind and eyes and their hearts. They're accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they believed with one heart and soul But because they believed, some of them, no doubt, were blacklisted, some much like in the book of Hebrews, uh, where we've laid the foundation. Because of following Christ, they faced difficulties. They lost their jobs. Some of them lost their spouses. Some of them, as I referenced, were blacklisted, and so they couldn't work. Maybe they lost their property. And so it was really important as the body of Christ grew and as the body of Christ came together that they take care of one another. And what a description this is. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. What a great testimony of believers dwelling together in unity. But they had everything in common. And verse 33 again, and let's continue. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. What a testimony. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, parentheses, which means son of encouragement, close parentheses, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
We'll stop there. That lays the stage for one of the most fascinating and dramatic occurrences in the early church, maybe one of the greatest, um, a fascinating story in all of our Bible in chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira, no doubt influenced by the testimony of Barnabas, sold some land, but deceived or tried to deceive the apostle Peter in bringing the money to give it to the body to be used to help take care of those who are in need. But they lied about it, kept some of the money, and were immediately through the ministry of the Holy Spirit struck dead. It's a powerful reality. And they were no doubt influenced, and this sets the stage for that story. But let's just look at this as we think about this man, Barnabas, who was making a difference in his church. The first thing I want you to see is that Barnabas was an encourager. We know this because in verse 36, it tells us that his name was Joseph, but that the church had gotten to where they called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, I take it that that is a reflection of him as an encourager, as a giver. It is possible that he had a father who was generous as well. But I think that it is largely reflective of his own character. Look at that guy. He's such an encourager, Barnabas. And so though his name was Joseph, when the disciples referred to him, they referred to him as with a nickname, Barnabas, because he was such an encourager. What a good testimony. Next thing we see about him in verse 37 is that he was very generous. As I already said, uh, when you accepted Christ and became part of the church at that time, it wasn't like here where uh, if this church doesn't meet your needs, you can just go down the street and find another church and find some people that'll help you. you. The only believers in town were right there, part of that group in Jerusalem in this case. Uh, The body of Christ was not large at this time, although hundreds and even thousands of people were coming to Christ at this time. But the believers had to take care of one another. And so Barnabas, not only was he an encourager, but he had means, he had wealth, he was a steward of his wealth, and he took some of it and he liquidated it, turned it into cash, brought it to the disciples, and the disciples then could distribute it among the body of Christ. And the testimony was that there was no one among them with a need. May it be so at Fellowship Bible Church. Look what he does. He had a piece of ground, a field, verse 37. It belonged to him. We don't know how much property he had. We don't know if he had uh, buildings, businesses, uh, other parcels of ground. But he had a piece of ground that he was willing to give to the Lord by selling it, liquidating it into cash, and bringing that money to the church. And then the leaders of the church took that money and distributed it. So not only was he an encourager, but he was generous. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, in our ESV, you don't have to turn there, but in our ESV, it uses the word water. He who waters others will himself be watered. The idea is you give somebody a drink of water and your thirst is going to be satisfied. I like the way the NIV puts it. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. You know, I suspect that Barnabas was one of the one of the happiest people in the early church. You cannot be generous. You cannot encourage others and be downcast. He was so thrilled to be used of God. And you know what? The more you do, the more you do. It's amazing. And so Barnabas sells this property, liquidates it. He's generous. He's an encourager. If you want to write in the margin of your Bible and on your own time this week, you want to spend a little bit of time reading slowly through 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, those two chapters, almost in their entirety, 
we'll talk about the blessings of being a blessing and how generosity and kindness, how God will give to you so that you can give to others and then God will keep giving to you. And I think that's true not only of individuals, but I think it's, of, it's true of a church as well. That as we are characterized by generosity as a church, the Lord just continues to pour out on us all the more so that we can keep giving. You look it up and see what you think. By the way, I think verse 32 is worthy of a, of a brief comment. Uh, let's look back, let our eyes go back to 432. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Some people will say that's a mandate, that Christians should live communally. But it's really not. It's just descriptive of what was happening. So I made a comment in the text box on it. Note for verse 432. Let me just read it to you. This was an indication, this commonality, this generosity. This was an indication of their love and their unity. There should be no such thing as poverty in the Christian community. Do you realize that? You see, because even though this is descriptive of what was happening in the early church, what is taught to us, what is prescribed to us in the epistles, 1 John, for example, chapter 3 says, if you uh, love God then you, and you love your brother, and if you see your brother in need and you don't respond to it, then don't say you love God and don't say you love him. And so it is prescribed to us regularly, that passage I just referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, those chapters, that was the Apostle Paul instructing the churches to be generous and to give, to meet the needs, one church meeting the needs of another church in that case. There should be no such thing as poverty in the Christian community. This is not socialism. Make sure you understand this. This is not socialism. It was purely a voluntary let of the Spirit sharing with no abolition of ownership or discouragement of private enterprise. It wasn't long ago I said this. I'll repeat it. But if you have the opportunity to develop yourself, you ought to. It is not wrong to have property. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to have accounts. It's not wrong to take your resources and develop them into more resources. What is paramount is the attitude of your heart and the motive with why you're doing that. Barnabas was wealthy. There are testimonies throughout scripture of wealthy people, but Barnabas used it as a steward for the church. We don't know how wealthy he was, but it wasn't mandated. It was voluntary, and it was designed to meet the needs in the body of Christ. Thirdly, turning to Acts chapter 9, I want you to see that Barnabas was a trusted, reliable, and credible individual in the church. Chapter 9, we have a little bit of a section to read here. What we have now is chapter 9 is the breaking point in the book of Acts where we move particularly from the focus of Peter and his ministry to where Saul of Tarsus, who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, who persecuted the local church, had an encounter on the road to Damascus where he was going to persecute Christians, and God slams him down on the road to Damascus, blinds his eyes, 
convicts him in his heart, speaks personally to him, and tells him, I am handpicking you to be my missionary to the Gentiles. I am handpicking you to plant churches, to write much of our New Testament. And God got a hold of Saul of Tarsus, turned him into the apostle Paul, changed his name, changed everything about him. And this is where this conversion of Saul is recorded in the book of Acts. Coming out of that, if you let your eyes go to verse 18, let's read a little section here. And I want you to see how instrumental Barnabas was in the life of the Apostle Paul. Beginning with verse 18, this is finishing up the Apostle Paul's testimony where he was knocked down on the road to Damascus. And and then what happens is God gives him his sight back. He was blinded. And immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened because it was evidently three days or so there at least where he was uh, uh, probably lost his appetite. It was a very emotional experience and uh, it just drained him. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. So as soon as he was converted, he was baptized. That's the testimony of scripture. Believed and was baptized. Believed and were baptized. And then in the synagogues, he goes where they're gathering and discussing the Old Testament scriptures. That's all they would have had. Verse 20. And Paul then, Saul, goes into the synagogues. He then begins to dialogue and interface with these people. And he begins to proclaim Jesus, the one he was persecuting. He now preaches him. Crucified, buried, risen again, prophesied in the Old Testament, saying he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed, and they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ." He was an apologist. He could take the Old Testament scriptures. He could sit down with you and he could open up the scriptures and he could show you how it's all about Christ. I think that's the theme of our ladies Bible study this semester. Christ in the Old Testament. How do you see Jesus here? And it's all about Christ. And he finally became convinced his impersonal encounter with Christ. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was risen from the dead And that he alone was God in the flesh, worthy of our worship. He's our worthy one. Well, it says then, when many days had passed, verse 23, let's continue the story, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So... Saul, who had been one of the religious leaders in Israel and around Jerusalem, persecuting the church, now is a convert to Christ, is a follower of Christ, is proclaiming Christ, is a defender and an apologist for Christ. The Jews can't stand it. They're the very ones who crucified this Christ. They can't stand it. They put the word out to assassinate Saul. So they're walking around with shiv underneath their robe waiting to stick him between the rib cage when he's in the marketplace someday and unsuspecting he gets word of it his buddies put ropes around him and in a basket and lower him down the wall and through the night he escapes 
Verse 26, continue the story. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid. So from Damascus, he comes to Jerusalem and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Let's just stop there. You have the idea. So he comes to Jerusalem. The believers are there. He's Saul of Tarsus. They know his reputation. He's the one who who uh, was the leader over the stoning and martyrdom of Stephen They think he's coming to get on the inside to pretend he's a Christian just to get their names, just to arrest them, to figure out what's really going on. And who is it? Who is it that says, wait, everybody, no. This is our guy. He's one of us. It's Barnabas. And so we see that he was a trusted and reliable and credible figure among the believers there in Jerusalem. I want you to notice too, number four, that he was characterized by a spirit of grace. He was a mercy giver. He didn't hold a grudge against Saul for killing Stephen. He knew that Saul had wreaked havoc among the believers. He knew that he was a most intimidating character. But no, he gets his arms around the whole church. He brings Saul in. He has his arms around Saul. And because Barnabas believes in Saul, the church accepts Saul from being afraid to welcoming him to their homes and to listening to his teaching, all because he was trusted, he was reliable, he was credible, he was characterized by a spirit of grace. Not only that, I want you to turn to chapter 11, flip the page, and I want you to see that he had spiritual discernment. The church continues to trust and rely upon Barnabas. He is a man who is mad in the church. He is making a difference in the church. Notice chapter 11. We're beginning now here, verses 19 to 26 in chapter 11. This is a description of the church at Antioch. Now those who were scattered because of persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So you see, God often uses persecution almost like a thistle weed in a hayfield that pops in the sun and the seed blows And the seeds embed themselves and sprout up with more. That's how the persecuted church does. In the oppression, it pops, it spreads, it replants itself, and God grows up the church using persecution for his own end. Now there were those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Okay, those were Grecian Jews, also preaching the Lord Jesus. So the the Gentiles from Cyrene and Cyprus run into these Grecian Jews And they do speak to them about Christ, and then look what happens. They realize they're preaching Christ, and the the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. You have to understand that in the early church, racism was huge. Jews hated Gentiles. Gentiles hated Jews. Now, all of a sudden, something that has never happened in the brand new early church in Jerusalem is happening, and Gentiles are becoming converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there's schism. Oh, and we don't know if there's, maybe the gospel's not for them. 
It's only for us. We're God's chosen people. Gentiles are made to burn in hell. And so here they are, and there's division, but then they, the church is scattered, and it's scattering into Gentile lands. And there the gospel is taking root among the Gentiles even, not just in Jerusalem, where it is only the Jews. And the hand of the Lord is upon them again, verse 21, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Read on, verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Is this a great testimony about Barnabas? You see what's happening? There's tension in the church. Gentiles are being saved. The church at Jerusalem hears about it, and they want to pick somebody out that can go make a difference and calm down the nerves, and can impact and influence. And so they pick none other than Barnabas because he had spiritual discernment. He was trusted. Notice in verbatim to Scripture in 1124, the first part of the verse says, number six on our list, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You know, I don't know if anybody's going to remember us when they think about their church someday. And when they think about the people in their church, you think about Ed Ostrowski, a little bit odd, a good man, a good man filled with the Holy Spirit, fully intending to walk in obedience to Scripture, led by the Spirit, demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit and of faith. What will they say about you someday? I want you to see also that he was driven for the cause of the gospel. In verse 25, when he recognizes that all of these Gentiles are being saved, that they need to be taught, he says to himself, self, who can I get that can disciple these people? And he thinks of Saul. He goes to Tarsus, he finds Saul, he brings him back, and together for a whole year they disciple the believers there. And there at Antioch, they're first called Christians. What a great story. What a man who's making a difference in his church. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was driven for the cause of the gospel. Finally, I want you to see see as you turn the page yet again to chapter 13, just the first few verses here, I want you to see how surrendered to Christ Barnabas was. Acts chapter 13, looking at verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and now a list of names, and who's first on the list other than Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menain, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John assist them, and then they go on out through the islands. Listen, number seven, Barnabas was clearly driven for the cause of the gospel. Number eight, he was though he was available for the work of the gospel. 
He was available for the work of the gospel. You know, he's sitting in church one day, and he didn't know that it was going to be his last day at the church. He didn't know that that the Spirit of God was going to begin a new work, but he was ready. He was available. I was thinking that it's possible that someone here today might be one of those few. It doesn't happen often, and it doesn't happen to very many, where God puts his hand on an individual and he says, I'm calling you out. I want you to go for me. I have a job for you. Maybe it's Bible college. Maybe it's seminary. Maybe it's uh, uh, to join a church planting team. It's a commitment to ministry, and God has his hand on you. I want to use... Barnabas in the text box that I included on the bottom of the notes. I want you to notice how God moved Barnabas out into full-time ministry. I want you to just observe what happened there at Antioch. First of all, you notice that he was Barnabas' testimony was that he was faithfully and actively involved in his local church ministries. Every time we read about the church, Barnabas is involved. He was faithful. His gifts were recognized here at Antioch. They're looking around the church. Who should we send? Let's send Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas. His gifts were recognized and they were affirmed in the local church. His heart was moved by the Holy Spirit during a worship service. I've just noticed that when God seems to get a hold of a life and he wants to move that individual, it often happens when the body is assembled together and it's a worship service. And we've, we've been singing and we've been praying and we've been preaching and all of a sudden the conviction is there and the Spirit says, I want you. I want you. That's what happened at Antioch. They were praying. They were fasting. They were worshiping. And the Spirit of God says, I want you, Barnabas. And he goes. His heart is moved by the Holy Spirit during a worship service. There was much praying and fasting. And he was willing to go. Did you notice he gets up and goes? Translation of that is major life change. It's not easy. Not only was he willing to go, but the entire church affirmed him with the laying on of hands and praying over him. He was affirmed and sent by the local church. He was a man who made a difference. He continued to make a difference. I want you to see also, number nine, that he was a capable teacher of the Word of God. Notice what he says there. When he arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues and the Jews. They had John to assist them, but that included Barnabas with Saul. They were teaching the word of God. Listen, one thing I do know about Hebrews chapter 6, as difficult of a passage as it is, and it might be one of them, it might be the most difficult passage in all the Bible to discern exactly what the author's saying. But the point of the passage is clear. And completely understandable. Some of the sentences that he uses, what is he saying? But the point of Hebrews chapter 6 is this. You must, it is a very serious thing, you must grow spiritually. You need to get off your milk and get on to meat because otherwise you have the capacity to harden your heart and even God will let you harden your heart and you will no longer be usable. You must grow spiritually. That's what Hebrews 6 is going to be about next week. You see that Barnabas grew spiritually and God used him. He could teach. Are you making a difference in your church? It was interesting to me as I looked at the notes early this morning, thinking about what we should have from our pulpit today. 
that on November 25th, 2007, when I preached this, I actually handed out notes. That was before the days when I was handing out notes every Sunday, but I had put notes together for that day. On the back of the notes, and I didn't reproduce it for this one, partly because of time, partly because it was kind of stale and a little bit of an obsolete list in, in application to what's happening now in 2019. I put a list on the back of 50 ways to get involved and make a difference in your church. And I had a list of 50 things. And as I looked over the list, it occurred to me that almost all of them were really simple things. Work in the nursery. Weed whack. Mow. Wash pots and pans. Spot clean the carpet. Wash windows. Make a phone call to an elderly person. They were relatively simple things. You see, we need to be making a difference in our church. I believe that God is just beginning to do a work here at Fellowship Bible Church. I I just sense that. He's done a good work, but I think he's just getting us ready to use us in greater ways. He's blessed us. We need people to be engaged, to be connected, to be making a difference to be working together in our local church. And you say, all right, Pastor Van, I want to get involved, but I don't know how. My point is this, just find something simple and do it. Because little things lead to bigger things. You get involved in the little things and God will begin to open up opportunities at a greater level. And you know, this sounds pretty profound, but here it is. The more you do, the more you'll do. The more you get involved, the more you will get involved. And you'll get to know people and, and we'll recognize gifts in you and we'll recognize, you'll recognize needs that you can meet and you'll be able to see things. So find little things, be faithful in the little things. And as God allows you to do little things and the, the little things all add up and we need, we need everyone to be involved. But it will grow and God will use you to make a difference in your church. And your church then will make a difference in the community and will make a difference around the world as God uses us, as we reflect these dynamic characteristics of this great Christian man, Barnabas. Will you stand with me, please? And let's bow our heads and close in prayer. I wonder how the Lord has gifted you. I wonder if you can say you're making a difference. I'm not beating you up at all. I'm wanting to encourage you. Your presence here today is an encouragement. Your giving in the offering is a blessing and an encouragement. We need to work together like that. But what else? What does God have for you? As I said in our opening statement, I'm concerned that a casual connection to the local church is indicative of a casual connection to Jesus Christ. I'm not promoting a work system. I'm promoting getting engaged in your local church, not living in isolation, but engaging and letting the love of Christ flow through you, all for the cause of the gospel of Christ. Be a Barnabas. Make a difference. So, Father, thank you for this testimony of this man. Thank you for how you... Uh, bump us, you challenge us, you show us ways that we can be involved. I pray that you would encourage our hearts today. And I thank you for so many faithful servants at Fellowship Bible Church. 
people who are making a difference all around us all the time. Father, would you begin to use us even in a greater way? The needs are great. The world is dark. We have the light of the gospel, and you are worthy to be proclaimed. You are worthy of our worship, and you are worthy of our work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.